This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this Edinburgh International Book Festival event. My name is Serena Field. I'm a radio producer, and this event will be interpreted by Joe Ross. This event kicks off the This Woman Can strand of the festival, which gives us the opportunity to come face to face with phenomenal women. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> Jess Phillips is a brilliant choice for this strand. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley. Before being elected in 2015, she worked with victims of domestic and sexual violence and human trafficking, and those issues remain close to her heart. She's also part of the Not the Cost campaign to combat the violence faced by politically active women and the Reclaim the Internet campaign, which challenges online abuse. She was re-elected in the general election a few weeks ago. In February, she published Every Woman... <laughs> One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth. And as well as being a manifesto for equality, it, it also outlines how far she's travelled in a short time. I'll quote her. She describes herself as being second choice for a low-level job in a small local charity. And seven years later, she was addressing the UN alongside Madeleine Albright. And she attributes this to giving a toss, being delusional and speaking up. She makes it sound easy, doesn't she? So please welcome <laughs> Jess Phillips. So Jess, you're wanting to bring about change with this yep. book. It was published a few months ago. What's the reaction been so far to you speaking the truth? Um, I mean, mostly good. Obviously, some people write horrible things about your book when you write a book. And uh, my favourite review was the actually a bad review of the book, which was in the Sunday Times, which said that I should have talked about my brother more in a book called Every Woman about <laughs> feminism. <laughs> I should have talked more about my brother. My brother was delighted and brought it round to my house and was like, that look, you should have talked about me more. Uh, I'm the most important thing in your life. Um, but um, it's the reaction from people uh, who've read it, young women. Um, I have uh, this one brilliant young woman who I sort of made friends with on Twitter called Isabel. And she now, she, she after reading the book, she will tell me every time she stands up and speaks back or shouts at somebody for catcalling her in the street or goes into school and says, actually, miss, you treat the girls differently to how you treat the boys, or this isn't fair, and she will tell me all the time she does it. So I know that at least one person is listening. Um, but I get lots and lots. Of, on Twitter every day, people will tell me that they've read my book and that it makes them feel like that they can have a go at, at sort of fighting back and being brave. But it's I understand that it's not that easy and that, you know, we most women come across injustice all the time in their lives and feel a definite burden of being treated differently and we're willing to say that we feel it now but we're less willing to say yeah. you know what is the equal pay everywhere we go every single establishment where one of us works there will be an equal pay problem and nobody is just going up to their boss and saying sort it out get on with it uh, and that's what I want I want people to be their own activists and people to fight back and as you said there it it does it is hard it is hard to speak up um and you start the book with 
mentioning another woman and what she said to you. Um, and that woman is appearing in the This Woman Can strand of this festival. It's uh, your fellow MP, Harriet Harman. And she told you four weeks after you were elected, you will never be liked. How did that feel in that moment? Well, it was, I mean, it's, it's to me, it felt like... Uh, uh, a genuine baton passing. It wasn't like she was like, oh, no one likes you, Jess. It was quite the opposite. No. Um, she sort of said to me, she was trying to basically make me do something, which is Harri Harriet's MO, is to get people <laughs> doing things. Um, and she came up to me in this meeting, I think it was the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party, and, and she just put her hand on my shoulder, but sort of like pushed. <laughs> uh, and, um, and said to me, you know, you're going to have to keep on going and you will never be popular. People will always deride you for the things that you say and do because people don't want power to be shared. And it felt like she was saying, because at the same time she was retiring from the front bench, she was stepping down from being the, it was just after the election of Jeremy Corbyn, so she yeah. was stepping down from her role as interim leader, and she was going to now take a sort of back seat. I mean, she hasn't, she's up in our business all the time, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. Um, take a back seat and she was just sort of saying you're going to have to be you know called her person now you're going to have to be the one who takes it on the chin and has you know the sort of daily mail going oh get back in the kitchen mm. um and she so it but so to me it felt like oh my god Harriet Harman's picking me to be the person to moan because you really admire her oh don't my you? gosh I literally worship her <laughs> I worship her I think she is she has made it so that women like me can be in politics and be funny and be kind and be normal. And she wasn't able to do that. She was a serious woman. She was. She had to be better, cleverer, smarter, more serious than anyone else because she already was not being taken seriously because she was a woman. When she was elected, there were 11 women in the labor in, on the Labour benches mm. and she was six months pregnant. That is <laughs> unbelievable. That is would have been unheard of. When I got there, there's bloody hundreds of women. They're all pregnant. <laughs> got like a gynaecology <laughs> department in Portcullis House now. <laughs> um, and... Um, I genuinely think there are some women who think, oh, the Labour Party is a bit of a pain at the moment. Let's have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Now's the time while everyone's moaning on at each other. <laughs> um, that's the, that, not a bad idea. My husband has, alas, had the snip, so I can't take that option. Um, but um, it's definitely not worth it. Um, the, um, but that, you know, she was all of those really serious and really, she, she, ploughed the furrow so people like me could come along and be like you know more entertaining and more fun and 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 say sort of fuck it to the world whereas she would never have been able to do that because I love the sign for fuck it <laughs> I learnt Birmingham earlier and Nottingham <laughs> sorry just Nottingham. <laughs> um, the uh, so you know that that she's amazing to me. So everything that she does, um, I think, and she has done for girls like me. And in the the inside front cover of the book, you say that if we know you, we probably know you for being a gobby MP. Um, you got to Westminster and you found out that you were kind of instantly. Um, Unpopular, or, or people were trying to close you down, shut you down in some way. In what ways did that manifest itself? Um, it manifests itself 
um, in lots of different ways. Some is very subtle, quiet ways of trying to say, and it's done by people who really, really love you um, and don't mean to do it, but don't realise their own, I suppose, quiet discrimination. Um, and they say things like, you want to be careful you don't get pigeonholed with that whole women thing. You know, we're half the fucking population. It's not a pigeonhole, it's a chasm. It could fit so much in there. But people say things like, oh, if you go on about women all the time, people won't take you seriously. And uh, as I say in the book, no one ever says to George Osborne, oh, dude, stop cracking on about the economy. Yeah. Don't you also care about, you know, foreign affairs? Oh, no, because we only talk about the economy. No one ever said that to George Osborne, but lots of people say that to me. People who genuinely care about you will say that to you. Um, but then there are actually very... Yeah, so it goes from that sort of quiet, like, be careful, you don't want to ruffle right. people's feathers, right up to, shut up, we're going to kill you if you don't stop talking like that. And that comes from social media, that comes from... Um, some of your colleagues, um, lots of male Tories on the opposition benches when you speak, they, um, and I, I have to say, there's n it's not perfection on the Labour Party benches either, um, but I don't face them, do I? So I don't see what they're doing. Right. Um, there's a lot of shushing, they're like, shh. They do that gesture a lot, shh. Yeah. Which I assume is sign language for what a brilliant woman you are, keep talking. <laughs> 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 because exactly, that was the next thing I was wanting to ask, because you see that unpopularity as, you, as, as evidence of you making progress mm -hmm. then. But are you a naturally optimistic person, a person with a very thick skin? Is that just how you are? Because that would get a yeah. lot of people down. Yeah, you know, yeah, your job, yeah. trying to make your way. Yeah, no, I am, I am naturally yeah. optimistic, actually. I always have been. Um, my, it's funny because my, my mother was very, 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 very optimistic. My father is the most pessimistic person <laughs> in the entire world. Uh, this morning I tweeted uh, to say, oh, if you're in Edinburgh, um, come and see me. And I spelt your Y-O-U-R, because, you know, it's Twitter, and it was like five seconds. My dad, who hasn't texted me, it turned out, since like 2007, uh, <laughs> just tweeted me and said, it's Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, dad. <laughs> So that gives you an idea of what he's like. Um, and um, so, uh, but I am very, very, very positive and I don't let it get me down. Also, I, I grew up with, I'm the youngest of, I've got three older brothers, so a thick skin <laughs> is, yeah, it doesn't even cut it. And the women who I surround myself with and my friends who I surround myself with, they are very much like me. They are tough and sort of call a spade a spade and mm -hmm. tell people to do one if they're annoying them. Um, so, yeah, I don't find it difficult just to be like, whatever, to the to naysayers. And in fact, I let it build me. I, yeah. like, take it and turn it sort into power. strength from yeah. it, yeah. Because you're in an interesting position, aren't you? Because in the book you describe yourself as being an outsider in Westminster. Um, and you've talked there about it helping you do what you've gone there to do. But you're also part of the establishment 
now too, <laughs> and you have to, in order to be effective, I presume you have to play by the rules to yeah. a certain extent. So how do you get that balance and how do you not lose your outside perspective, yeah, your freshness? I, I mean, I think that it is very, very difficult. My nan would be delighted that I was a member of the establishment. <laughs> <laughs> she would just be like, oh my gosh, look, we're an establishment family. Yeah. Um, the I think that it is very, very difficult to not lose way the way of normal people in the world. Um, but I still live in the place where I grew up. I still am surrounded by the same people who I grew up with. My husband, I mean, who isn't here, he had two free tickets, but he didn't come because he's literally not interested in anything <laughs> that I say or do. Um, and my children were equally like, oh, we're going to go to the park, mum. So there is a, re a sense of reality mm -hmm. about them um, and them keeping you down to earth. My children still go to the local state schools, the local comprehensive school, um, and I carry on my life exactly as I did before. I use the same um, bus services as my mm -hmm. constituents, the same hospitals, the same... Uh, so I, I wouldn't change that. Um, and... A, because I, I don't actually know what the alternative is. Um, there isn't really an alternative where I live. That's just like, that's what it is. And at the moment, there's a bin strike in Birmingham. Birmingham. Um, and um, I just really love the sign for Birmingham. Uh, the, there's um, a bin strike in Birmingham at the moment, and people keep ringing me up and being like, oh, my bins haven't been collected for like six months. This is disgusting, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, I bet your bins have been collected. I'm like, my bins also have not been collected. <laughs> I don't get like a special MP's bin collection where they come round and collect my bins. Also, my <laughs> bins have not been collected. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you do become part of the establishment. There's no two ways about it. What we have to do is try and demystify the idea of the establishment. Mm -hmm. The establishment is disappointing if you're expecting some sort of Illuminati. <laughs> when you get to see behind the curtain, the idea that we could have faked putting a man on the moon and things like that, honestly, can't even get a drop curb put in. I'm not even joking. Uh, the idea that there is some shady stuff going on in Westminster is totally laughable because it is... What you see is all there is... <laughs> It is I th so. I think that we have to demystify the idea of the establishment, um, and stop people being able to use it as a tool for nasty mm. politics. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that at the moment. And you were talking there about demystifying uh, the establishment and you know the way it all works. And I, I thought it was. I mean, there was a great story about um, when you finally were elected in 2015. Nobody told you what to do now and what happens next. And it seemed like there was a real um, lack of information about oh, yeah. how you do this. And that's, I was thinking, I'd like you to tell the story if you don't mind, because it, it's, it's really <laughs> funny. But also, it, it seems as though it's very mysterious. Uh, you know, how do you get to do this? How do you end up there? And you've, some, you've found your way through it. But, and that, that's part of you then yeah. demystifying it, hopefully, for the for Yeah, the I mean, so when I was elected, I'd been to Parliament once before, mm. I think. I'd been in the building once mm -hmm. before. Yeah. And for lots of MPs, that won't be the case. They will have worked in that building. They will have 
known the system a lot better. But I had, I think I'd been there once, maybe when I was at school. We went there. I can't really remember. That all kids seem to go there now, so I assume that we must have. Um, um, and so I didn't know it at all, um, the building or anything like that. And when you are win the election, they hand you a piece of paper, and a piece of paper literally has like a tube map. And I'm not even joking, it has a tube map in it, an envelope with a tube map and a see you at Westminster like on Monday, report to this desk in Port Callis House in it and that's it. And you just handed that, that like the returning officer mm. at Birmingham Town Hall just <laughs> gives go. it to you. And I left it in the car because I just thought it was like, you know, that a formality right. to say like, oh, you know, they have to give you something. They feel like they have to hand you something. So I just totally ignored this piece of paper. Um, and um, also, I believed that we weren't because I was elected in 2015 when we expected there to be a hung parliament. It was a bit later. Um, I expected there to be lots of wrangling over who was going to be in charge, power sharing, whether the Lib who the Lib Dems were going to go with this time um, and all of that to be going on. So we we'd been told not to expect to be in parliament for like three, four weeks if we one but in fact we had to go only 48 hours later and you literally just turn up I rang up this number which said that they would help which was in this piece of paper which I'd found on the Sunday when I went out to do the shopping and it was just in the front of the car <laughs> and there was a number like travel office and they it said uh, you know we'll help organize a hotel room for you and I rang up and I tried to get um, a hotel room for me and my children and uh, my husband so that we could all go together and it so they said they quoted me like I don't know is that hundreds of pounds. It was like a month's rent in Birmingham, and I was like, I'm not paying this. So we packed up our van and went in our camper van and um, <laughs> to Parliament, and we were going to park it in the car park of my friend's house in Brixton. But luckily, his flatmate had gone off for the weekend, so we were able to stay the sleep on their floor in Brixton. Um, and then I turned up at Parliament the next day, having had no sleep and slept in a tiny London bedroom with four people. Kicking one of them, kicking me in the face all night, which he did last night because we're in one room again. <laughs> um, and and then you just expected to become a member of parliament, and nobody. You'll have sessions where Dennis Skinner tells you, like, how to be funny in the chamber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that genuinely happened. We had like a session with Dennis Skinner, and like very brief sort of overview over what's expected of you as part of the Labour Party, the whip and all that stuff, yeah. and this is your whip. But that's it, really. You just make it up, then. You make up being a Member of Parliament. You make it what it is, and that's why there are 650 different Members of Parliament who do things differently. Some of them, I run my um, constituency office like a... Uh, charity, I run it like I ran Women's Aid, and so I have an open door where people can come in mm -hmm. and at any time um, in the working week and get help and advice. And we have specific surgeries to help specific groups of people, people with debt. We have a Women's Aid worker. Um, we have all of those sorts of things. And that's because that's how I know how to do it. Right. Those people who I don't know would just had rich parents before they became members of parliament do NAFL. Uh, and don't open up their offices and don't do anything because that's how, like, what they know how to do. Um, I assume. I assume that's what they're doing. We're definitely um, demystifying it, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So um, I. Yeah. But yeah, every every MP is different. And people will ring me and say, "Well, my MP says he'll do this," and I say, "Well, good for him." Right. Uh, every everyone is different. Okay. So let's say a word about the book. Um, we've mentioned speaking out, and that's actually one of the, the themes of the book, and you've divided it up into a number of, of themes. How did you come up with that 
that way of of writing this this book? I mean, you've had you know an interesting life to date. Why didn't you just write a memoir? Why a, a manifesto? I mean, I'm only thirty five. That's why I said today. You've <laughs> done so much. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and also, I just think I don't know. Like a memoir sounds really grand. Um, and actually, I think that when you write, when I was writing, I, I can write very quickly and write a lot very very quickly if I have something to say Um, and I don't have an awful lot to say more than I said about my childhood I suppose or my growing up or Mm -hmm. my because it was really nice I had a nice childhood my uh, my my reception school teacher is actually in the audience she was a great teacher Um, and um, so I had a happy and healthy yeah. childhood and family life. Um, and maybe I should have written more about my brother. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the whole book in there. I'm waiting for that one day yeah. when he finally pisses me off enough for me to tell everyone. Um, it's surprising he hasn't come this close. Um, the but the truth is, is that I wanted to say something about those things. Those mm-hmm. are things that I have been saying down the pub with my mates for the past 20 years. People mm-hmm. now just are interested in hearing what I have to say. So the way that I sort of structured it, wanting to talk about... Uh, and, and actually, the publisher said, well, you should put some context in about your why you got to be the way you are. So you should yeah. put something in about you growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to write about all the things that really annoyed me when I became a young mum and... Uh, the expectations that were put on women um, and I had a lot to say about that and I had an awful lot to say about domestic violence and sexual violence and the way that women are treated in their workplaces and these are things that I really want it wasn't difficult for me to say them Mm -hmm. um, because they've all been in there seething for so long so they sort of fell out of me and actually um some of it is a celebration so writing about the idea of sisterhood being a massive yeah. celebration that was just the easiest thing to write i wrote it in a caravan in uh sort of mid france with like six of my girlfriends around me and we just got drunk and like wrote about amazing times that we'd had together mm-hmm. um and it it's i think you have to have something to say and i'm not sure i've got that much to say about my life mm. other people's lives are far more interesting well, the, the bits that you do write about about your background and your your family, they are really interesting. Oh, and you you mentioned there your um, your primary school teacher. Um, and when did you become interested in politics? Were you oh, very really as from from when all you were a child? Life, yeah. Was your family political? Yeah, my family okay. is incredibly political. All my life, we were groomed. I imagine. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even joking. It is like, I imagine it's what like being in sort of a fundamentalist um, religious right. household <laughs> is like. Um, my family, I mean, when I was growing up, we went to Women's Liberation Playgroup and... <laughs> Um, really? And people think that like people, we were like being shouted at by feminists. It was just so that the other <laughs> women could go to work. Oh. <laughs> we were just eating soggy toast and eating quarters of oranges. <laughs> I remember Fluella Benjamin came once. That was really exciting. Um, I feel like I might have made that up, but I think it did happen. Um, I have asked her since she doesn't remember. Um, but yeah, that, so we went, you know, everything we did was about the Labour Party. Everything was about the collective. So my parents were in babysitting circles that meant that the, wim- different, the women could work. Mm-hmm. They were in, um, like, orga- long before anyone went on about organic food, like food circles where, I don't know, the man who actually ended up being like something like, 
the Secretary General of the BBC brought potatoes round to our house, which seems so unlikely now, but there was some sort of fruit and veg thing that went on. And every, like, bonfire night, every birthday, every Christmas party, everything we did was with the Labour Party is like a religion to us then. And that was in the 80s when things were really militant Mm. and it was a Thatcher years. We spent our weekends going out and campaigning um, with releasing a lot of balloons. We used to do a lot of balloon releasing for miners. (laughs) I'm sure they were really thankful. (laughs) (laughs) Starving, but cheers for that balloon release. (laughs) But I assume then that you got used to hearing debate around you, having an opinion, taking part, giving your thoughts. And my family would eat together. We would eat. There were seven of us when I was growing up because my granddad lived with us and he was like a proper Marxist. And so my mum would be arguing for modernity and my dad and granddad would just be arguing for like the old order. Um, And my my granddad and my dad both make Jeremy Corbyn look like Tony Blair. So... (laughs) Whereas my mum was very much more, we might try and make some progress on this idea. Uh, So, yeah, we used to argue about it all night, every night, literally every single day. And your mum sounds like another phenomenal woman. She, you know, she pursued her own education. She pushed you in your education. She did so much. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, my mum has a genuine sort of rags to riches story where her, when she she grew up in a council house in Yardley where I represent... And her granddad was, my granddad, her dad was a terrible philanderer. I'm one of those people who has hundreds of grandmas because my granddad had loads of wives. (laughs) Um, Auntie Ivy was always my favourite. She looked like Bette uh, out of Coronation Street. Um, And um, so he'd run off and um, my nan was raising her on her own. She was a dinner lady at the local um, secondary school and she was raising her and two of her brothers on her own and then one of her brothers died when he was nine of a massive brain hemorrhage and so they had this quite sad life and then my mum um, she was really clever at school but she had to help her mum with the housekeeping and things so the suggestion was that she should leave school when she was um, 17 and not carry on doing her A-levels, which she had started because her mum needed help with the housekeeping. And luckily there is a a charity in Yardley which still exists, which gave um, a benevolent scheme so that my mum could carry on going to university where she got a degree in history and then sort of became very, very eminent within the National Health Service, became like a high-level civil servant. And in fact, my mum was one of the people who was sacked from the civil service in the 1960s because she got married. Wow. So she, yeah. when she was 17 and had left school, the first job she had was at uh, the GPO. So, and the only thing that she could ever remember from it was that she can crack a phone book. She used to sit in offices <laughs> at the GPO and have to get rid of old phone books so she could tear a phone book in half. And the trick is to crack the spine and tear and it. There tear. you go. Um, but she got married to my dad when she was just 18 and so she had to leave her job and then she carried on doing her A-levels and um, went to university and became very eminent. Mm-hmm. And another person who's shaped you um, is your brother Luke, who you mentioned because... There's not enough of him in the book. And there's not enough <laughs> But what, in what, in what there is in the book, you do say that he and his experiences and his struggles mm-hmm. kind of led you down the path that you went 
that, that meant you went work and worked at, at Women's Aid and helped mm. vulnerable people? Yeah. So my brother Luke is a heroin addict. He remains to this day a heroin addict. I think when I wrote the book, he was all right. Yeah. And I said, I shan't say that he's all right in the book because he won't be all right again. And I think he's now out of his 37th rehab. Um, and see, I, I joke like it's a laugh, whereas you people probably think it's quite serious, whereas it's a joke to us now how many times he's been in rehab. Uh, we have to laugh about these things. Um, so he has, uh, yeah, he's been like that ever since I was about 14, 13, 14, and we, I have looked after him most of his, of his life, mm -hmm. um, which is no easy task because drug addicts are not very nice people. Uh, and whilst I recognise that he has an illness, it is hard when... To, to be sympathetic to somebody who robs from you, threatens you, tries to sell you to their friends, that sort of thing. And um, so, um, but it, what it did, it taught me all those years of looking after him and having to help him and, and work out a very, very complicated system mm. for vulnerable people mm. pitching up anywhere. It is an incredibly complicated system mm -hmm. to even get over the first yeah. hurdle. Um, and so, yeah, that was what sort of inspired me to go. I thought, I'm quite good at this. I've, I've been doing this for him for all these years. Mm -hmm. Someone might as well pay me rather than rob from me. So um, I, that's what, why I essentially went and worked. in. It wasn't originally in Women's Aid. I worked with asylum seekers, young offenders I worked with for many years, um, newly settled refugee women and children, um, and just anyone who basically society would look down on and make the system difficult for. And of um, what your work at Sandwell Women's Aid, um, that was with v victims of domestic and sexual violence and human trafficking, and, and you say that still that's the most important, most life-changing job you ever had. Mm. Do you it, still feel that way? Yeah, I still feel that way. And I think I can't imagine I ever won't feel that way. Kat, who was my uh, assistant at, um, at Women's Aid, comes round every Monday at the moment to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> and um, I just like I sit her down on my sofa and before I let her watch Game of Thrones, I like absorb everything that's been going on there because it is an amazing place to work. To work somewhere that is genuinely about the empowerment of not just the people that you work with, the service users, but about all of the women who work there as well. And there are lots of other environments, like brilliant schools with brilliant heads will try and progress the brilliant people who are in the school, and brilliant companies will do, do the same. But that was the first time I had ever really experienced that sort of desperation for everybody to be getting on mm -hmm. and doing better and stepping up. And that that's the ethos of your charity, and that you really actually live it and believe it is remarkable and also you get to meet the most amazing people working in that world but also the service users and people want service users to be angels people want service users to be these amazing stories of women who beat their chest and their survivors people are desperate for the worthy survivor and there are lots of those but you know a lot of those women were a pain in the ass as well and but we're like and I'm much but it's like I've always preferred the naughty kids at school um that's probably why I liked my brother Luke the best um <laughs> My other two brothers aren't nice as well. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the, 
the the more difficult cases, some of these the characters that you would meet and the children you would meet in refuge, you could fill a thousand books with amazing stories about these people. And a lot of them are not really awful stories. A lot of them are brilliant, funny, vibrant stories of hope and determination um, that are you know unrivaled and in my time at working at women's aid i think we had eight thousand women every year come through service so yeah. there's a whole heap of stories yeah. out there um and what i mean i learned many many things and that that is women in refuge love to start chip pan fires <laughs> 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 which are every every couple of weeks right. two in the morning it's like another chip pan fire in refuge get out of bed go and sort it out and you say there was a lot of love and a lot of laughter in that loads, job loads and loads and so why then did you want to go and and, and become an mp <laughs> did you feel you could help more people yeah yeah that is exactly the reason i do sometimes question that decision <laughs> um but mainly because whilst i worked at women's aid i had stopped being a frontline worker um, very early on and became the person who sort of dealt with the politicians and dealt with right. the strategy for the organisation. So I was spent a lot of my time in the Home Office shouting and moaning or in the Ministry of Justice doing the same and um, or at lo local council levels. And I got so annoyed at banging my fists on the wrong side of the table. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I'm going to have to just get onto the other side of the <laughs> table and be the person who gets to make the decisions. And then it will be better because people like me actually know what we're talking about. Um, and so that was really the inspiration yeah. for doing it. And really, my, my biggest inspiration, ironically, is a Tory government because like I'd forgotten about them. I like forgot we used to have them. And like I'd sort of plodded along and then 2010 came and I was like, oh, better get active again. Better get back to fighting because look, yeah, because you yeah, moved like away a bit from the yeah, Labour Party yeah, didn't yeah, you, yeah, for a while. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, because like everything was all right, wasn't it? Like all of my formative years, having my first baby, having my second baby, buying a house, getting my degree, getting my first job, all under a Labour government, all nicely on an even keel. Where we, uh, mm. I know this is Scotland, and you have like a whole different politic as well. But in Birmingham, the SNP don't have, they're not like a thing. Um, um, the, so, you know, everything was all right. Mm. So I'd sort of stopped being really like firebrandy. Also, you know, obviously my family being the way they were, weren't that keen on Tony Blair <laughs> and yeah. the Iraq war and all of that. So we'd m I'd moved away from the Labour Party. I'd stopped being a member. And then 2010, I realised how complacent I'd been about the life that I'd been able to live because of a Labour government. Right. And then I thought, right, I'm going to have to make sure. Because if a 21-year-old kid now, a young woman, straight out of university, hadn't had a job, got pregnant, there's no way that that, 21-year-old kid in 10 years' time would end up a Member of Parliament. I recognise that the Labour government did so much for people like me. They, People like Harriet Harman and Tony Blair built ladders for people like me and screamed at them to shout, screamed and shouted, climb up this ladder. And now those ladders are being decimated now and that is what made me think I've got to go and build these ladders because I had tax credits gone. I had all sorts of different free nursery care 
all been completely and utterly degraded. I had public sector investment in the job where I worked. I wouldn't have, had it not been for a Labour government in my life, I wouldn't have had a job, I wouldn't have had free nursery care, I wouldn't have had tax credits, I wouldn't have been able to go back to work, I wouldn't have been able to buy my first house, I wouldn't be sat here with you now. And the difference between rich people, I think, and poor people is that rich people think that they'd still be rich if they'd been born poor. And they don't recognise all the things that happen to help you get to that position. And that's in 2010, when I started watching the women in my refuge lose all of their access to counselling services, lose their child benefit, lose their, the, the safety net that had put them there, literally lose their beds. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, I've been terribly complacent. I'm going to have to do something about this and fight for them because... I benefited from it. Yeah. And we've already talked about how you, you know, you did go and you, you were elected. Um, you, and we've spoken about, you know, you working with victims of abuse, but it just struck me reading the book how ironic it is that now you've, you've achieved that, you've become an MP. You yourself are the subject of mm -hmm. abuse, and a lot of that comes through through social media. Is it mainly, mainly Twitter? I was... Yeah, mainly I, Twitter. So... I was Not exclusively, though, I'm afraid. No, but quite a lot yeah. of it. And, I mean, there's a really interesting passage in it where you, you, know, you say you receive threats every day of the most vile nature. Um, and I, hadn't, I didn't know this phrase. Maybe other people do, called dogpiling. Do you know, do you know oh, anybody? Know can, you, can you talk about the threats and just explain kind of what happens and how that yeah. makes you feel? So a dogpiling, essentially, is somebody who will mention you, and it's this is quite specific to Twitter, I think. Yeah. I, I don't think you can do it on other formats, but somebody will mention you in a comment, and then basically that is like a bat signal, or in the book I call it a twat signal, um, to out into the ether to get their people to pile onto you. Um, so and like send, send a, lot of a millions of messages. So the, the example in the book, and I think the worst example I ever suffered, was there's a, a man, he's from Swindon, his name's something like Adrian. Um, he calls himself Sargon of Akkad. Um, he started a, and he said in an interview in the Sunday Times that he set out to harass me. That was his goal. Um, he's like an alt-right Trump-esque mm. knob. Um, and, I mean, he's called Adrian and he's from Swindon. I'm winning. Um, so I feel very superior to this man. Um, and the... So he said this thing about how I'd said something about having rape threats, and he said I wouldn't even rape her. She's too ugly for a raping or something like that. And then I had thousands and thousands and thousands of people telling me all the ways that they wouldn't rape me. So I wouldn't even rape her like this. I wouldn't rape her like this. I wouldn't rape her like that. Um, which is really good fun. And what happens in a dog pile is that it ha there's so much of it that is happening. So it's thousands of messages and it's coming through hundreds and hundreds of notifications that you couldn't possibly see anybody else actually talking to you. So if somebody in my constituency said, oh, you know, there is some racist graffiti on the 
on Hobmore Road, could you get rid of it? I would never be able to see that because it's just amongst mm. thousands mm -hmm. of messages. I would never be able to see kind things being said to me in response because you have to just shut down and leave it for 24 hours until it dies down itself so you can't see anything else. Um, and this is a method used by both trolls on the left and the right. Um, and the particular troll who was picking on me at the time, he has like a YouTube channel that is all about how he's going to do this to me. And uh, I mean, some classic YouTube videos of me. Absolutely brilliant. Those like sing along things with my head being kicked off. And I mean, really brilliant, which is great because I've got a 12 year old son. Um, and, you know, he goes yeah, on there all the time. Because these are the implications. Of, of this kind of this kind of thing. Mm. Um, so that will happen, and, and that is exactly the same as what a domestic violence abuser does. It yeah. is exactly the same. It is gaslighting. It is slow and steady. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. Shut you down. Shut you up. No one's going to believe you. Nobody cares about you. No one would ever do these things to you. And it is constant, and mm. it's like a constant drum. And also, what they do is like nobody. They isolate you, take you away from your family, from your friends, from your community, isolate you online so no one else can talk to you and all you can see is that. And that is, it is just classic abuse. Because what I was going to say was, then do you as an MP have to be on social media? But of course, if you come off it, you, you are winning. Right, they're winning. You cannot let them win. But how can you take all of that on? That I mean, these thousands of messages. But I mean, to be fair, they've sort of given... They're, 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 they do give up, they they give up on you a bit, and when the left started attacking me, they thought, "Well, they can have a now." Um, for a while, they've got bigger fish to fry. I don't know. They they went on to Hillary for a, a long while. I had the brilliant woman who is like an MTV presenter in New York or something. She sent me a thing you could like download into your computer and block them all in one go okay. sort of thing, which was helpful. So, uh, so yeah, that was some sisterhood from right. an MTV presenter in New York I've never met, which was appreciated. <laughs> um, and um, I actually really, really like getting... Uh, being better than them so now it's every day people will send me abusive messages or nasty mean messages on twitter um and i i really like just mm. being much funnier than them and uh responding to them and like people will say things like that can't wait for you to burn in hell and i'll say things like just looked it up on TripAdvisor. I just don't think I'm going to pop in. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a place I want to go. Um, and, you know, just, just it's, yeah. it's so much easier to be better than like a dunder-headed Neanderthal. It's easy. Oh, definitely. But, I mean, one of the people that you dedicate the book to is your friend and colleague, the Labour MP, Joel Cox, who was murdered by a constituent just mm. over a year ago. I mean, she too as many MPs do, receive malicious mm. messages. Um, and I, I don't think that she received any from the man who actually no. killed her. But there's, that's evidence of, that, of, of the visibility and the vulnerability of, of MPs. And did that sort of terrible event make you reevaluate your position? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely does. It makes you reevaluate it and then end up essentially where you started. Okay. Because, of course, when Joe was murdered, it became really obvious that we were vulnerable to that sort of an attack um, and Joe was explicitly murdered because she spoke up about certain things that she believed in she was killed as an act of terror of right-wing terrorism against a progressive view um, and she dared to speak up about it and she used to get a hell of a lot of abuse for doing that 
um, especially talking about the European Union latterly in her life, which she felt very passionately about because she worked there for many years. Um, so yeah, it definitely made me feel like I was more at threat. And also it, it makes the death threats that you'd got used to getting be like, oh, actually. So now I have to, I mean, the poor West Midlands police, um, I have to report every death threat that I get to them. and. That's yeah. quite a lot. So, and they have to always come back to me and say, oh, well, we've looked into it. It's not a credible and real threat. Um, and it's, I mean, when I say you get used to getting death threats, a man rang my office. He, the number was from, I think, Ghana. Ghana, yeah. Um, and it was about three weeks ago and he just literally started shouting down the phone. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you if you don't pay money. I'm going to kill you. I've got your name's Jess Phillips. I've got your photo in front of me. And I'm just literally like, all right, who sent you? Sort of like, like joking along with it oh. because I'm so used to it. I am so used to people threatening to kill me. And on my emails and things, I'll get, yeah, like, I don't like it when, I say this like this is totally unreasonable. I don't like it when they threaten to kill my children. I don't like that very much, um, and it makes me cautious about putting pictures right. of my kids on any sort of social media or anything, because then I start to think, oh gosh, you know, they could easily find them outside school. Does it make you fearful about just doing your normal family life, which but is so no, important? But you? ultimately, you end up going, fuck it. I'm going to still go and buy milk from the corner shop. I'm still going to go and do all the things that I did before, mm. because most of the threats aren't credible and only in your darkest moments do you th overthink and everybody does it in the middle of the night you overthink a thing that by nine o'clock in the morning is like <laughs> means nothing to you anymore and it's you realize that you overthought it um i just carry on mm -hmm. my life exactly mm -hmm. as it was before and let my children have the freedoms that they deserve um the only thing i think which i actually think is a benefit because I would die if my son made some of the YouTube videos, um, is we don't let our kids have social media presence in a way that I think we probably would if I wasn't a member of Parliament. Okay. But I don't want him to be one of those awful people who goes, hi guys, on those videos. Have you seen those? They are the worst. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> hi guys, today we're going to be playing a computer game. Why don't you just actually play a computer game? <laughs> uh, I have no concept of YouTube videos. So weird. In a moment, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask Joe your own questions. I just wanted to ask you one more, um, Joe. Another, there's so much that we could talk about in this book, but one other um, aspect I wanted to pick up on was about the, the current state of the relationship between politicians and the, the general public. How would you sum that up at the moment? It's pretty bad, isn't right. it? Um, yeah, it's pretty bad, although maybe it got a bit better recently. I think in the election... I was expecting, although actually, obviously in the election, it, you know, there was a hell of a lot of abuse um, being thrown at politicians. Yeah. And I think it was nastier than any election has been for a long time. But, you know, I've only been in two, so mm. I can't say for certain. But um, I think that the people, people really, 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 really don't trust politicians um, anymore and don't think that they are like them. They people are desperate for um, a sense of authenticity, but too easy to judge when people actually behave like humans um, and make mistakes. And I think that there is a growing chasm between the public 
and politicians that has to be changed because politicians don't give a toss if people don't like them. So after the scandal, the expenses scandal, mm. and people hated politicians so much, politicians carried on having their jobs. Politicians carried on making the decisions exactly like they always did. Politicians carried on doing exactly what they'd always done. It was the people who lost out. It's when you say you're all the same, when you sit and say, oh, I can't be asked with any of them, you're opting out of a system that is for you. And when you opt out of that system, politicians will just carry on and the established order will be delighted. The more people who opt out, the more they can dance in the sunshine and do whatever they like. And we have got to stop that. We have got to make politics about the people in the country, not about the 650 people in Parliament, because until we do that, we will still keep getting the same results where politicians make terrible decisions based on their own world l experience, mm. and that will be very, very limited. But I think it might, I actually think it's starting to tip the other way, and I think people want to take part a bit more. There is m much more activism. Um, around not just here but around the world and some of it is activism I think is ugly and horrible but at least people are taking part mm -hmm. but we definitely need to end the chasm that exists between constituent and member of parliament like people come into my office and I'll, I'll be like answering the phones or if I answer the phone people are like is it you I'm like yes answered your phone it's like what what it was ringing <laughs> i'm just a person or i remember i went to the tip recently and all the men at the tip were like oh my god help her with her bags and everything oh my god she's at the tip i'm like i've been coming to the tip every single week of my life all of my life um so yeah I, people are shocked that you are normal and have a normal life um but that's got and that's got to change because otherwise politics will just be mm -hmm. posh boys playing a game while the rest of us shout about them. I think it's time for some more some questions uh, for Jess from the audience. There are roving microphones, so if you could put your hand in the air if you want to ask her a question, and if you could wait till you get the mic so that we can all hear the question. Thank you. Is the mic on? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, this may be a complicated question, but if there was another snap election, the Tories, oh. the, the Tories deposed me, put me perhaps installed Boris, and Jezza asked you. Hang to on a minute, what's happened to it? They've ins <laughs> they've got rid of me. The, uh, the toppled me. Okay, uh, Boris has been installed. New, okay. sna new snap election. Okay. Jezza says to you, I want you to craft our manifesto and campaign. What would you? What would it broadly be like? It would have a lot more women in it. Than the last <laughs> one. Um, do you want me to take questions in threes and then answer them all? I can just answer, just I can just do answer one, it. Yeah, one uh, so one what if he said to me, Jezza, um, big pledges, yeah. what do you want? I mean, I'd fall over for a start off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, th I think that the truth of the matter is, is for me, in the snap election manifesto was... Um, Obviously, it was written in a bit of a rush. We didn't know that that was going to happen. Uh, I think it was really, really, really lacking in stuff that actually will help women. Um, so I would most certainly, I would be putting in actual rules about equal pay not being able to exist and targets. I would be putting in stuff around um, the anyone who has a public sector contract 
what that actually means and what they have to do to achieve that, and that would be things around equal pay, environmental issues. I would be putting in um, into the industrial strategy. I might mention women in that. We're half the population. Uh, we like to work as well. Uh, at the moment, we're entirely missing from it. So I might put things like care work and nursery and childcare into an industrial strategy, um, which at the moment is all about men with shovels. Um, because, you know, that's all that we need to get people to work is men having shovels. Some of us actually need to be able to get out of the fucking house so that we could, uh, you know, so somewhere to put our children would be nice. So I'd put in stuff about childcare, um, and I would, I would, I would keep in the stuff about university being free. Although I would make sure that it was far, far, far less important, far less of a big headline thing than early years education, which is the single biggest thing that will change a person's... <laughs> getting a load of middle-class people to be able to have an education for free that they probably would have got anyway isn't as important to me as making sure that every single kid, no matter where they're born, when they start school at the age of five, is in a level playing field, is the single thing that will change opportunity for people in this country. And there wasn't enough of that. But it was a rush. And we had to cost it. Um, so I would put in a shitload of stuff about early years. OK, there's a woman over here. Hi. Um, so when you're looking at oh, the there. repeal bill and 40 years worth of UK and EU law tangled together like a never-ending Christmas light, mm -hmm. um, you I'm have forward to that. sorry. I'm looking forward to it. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a lot that's tied in there to deal with discrimination against women in the mm -hmm. workplace. Uh, employers essentially saying we uh, being forced to treat people equally, and it doesn't always work, but that's tangled in there. Yep. So when you're looking at what this bill covers and what it's supposed to cover, there's a lot of discrepancy and the fear that you will be left in 2019 with a black hole of mm -hmm. what law used to be. Uh, how concerned are you about these specific areas, especially with what you know very well in terms of sexual assault, domestic abuse, and just the fate of UK law post the Brexit process? I'm very, 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 very worried about it. And the people who are making what it should look like are David Davis, Liam Fox, and Boris Johnson. So women can rest easy in their beds about their rights. Um, it, is, it could potentially be a total disaster for equalities law. And obviously the argument is that, well, of course, Britain will exceed what the European Union um, bottom line was on things like maternity pay, on things um, like um, Daphne spending, which is Daphne was a big European project that spent money on domestic violence projects, not not the act. Um, I once put an ad in The Guardian for a sexual exploitation worker and got four complaints. <laughs> <laughs> I can't put this in The Guardian. <laughs> to be in the mirror. Um, the, um, so there is a real problem, um, especially. And I think that the real problem comes with things that cost money. So all the repeal laws that won't cost any money, that, you know, are just basically 
stuff that the government should be doing and is in British law anyway is will ju will just be carried over and there'll be a million different statutory instruments to deal with just putting it over but the stuff that costs money and is going to cost the government money is considerably more at risk and a lot of the equality laws about how women have to be paid a certain amount, a lot of stuff around basic standards of work for people who do caring, basic standards at work for people who work with children. There is a real concern for me that anything that's going to cost any money will be degraded and the standards of what we feel about nursery care, the standards that we feel about people who work in care work, the standards around stuff to do with tribunals um, and maternity discrimination will be, you know, it w that will be gone. Um, and so, but because there's so many laws, it's like a billion laws, um, we're going to have to just be really vigilant and have crack teams of people caring about certain things. So I will focus on the women. I will say, right, I'm going to look at every single law that comes over and I'm going to sit on every S SI, every stuff, which is boring. I'm sorry, it is boring sitting on all those committees um, and make sure that those laws are okay. But the government will have a majority so they can vote them down if they want to. And they'll have their DUP friends in the meeting with them. We've got so they're big on women. <laughs> Thanks very much. I wanted to ask you about debt and benefits advice because your constituency surgery sounds brilliant and I wish <laughs> I lived in your constituency. Oh. I've just come up from Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is halfway between here and Newcastle and the East Coast line. Very pretty little view from the train line. We've got one of the most serious problems of illiteracy, teenage pregnancies, yeah. early years, education, poverty. We're about to lose our citizens' advice office. Northumbrian Citizens Advice is shutting just about everything between, you know, basically mm. there's not going to be any face-to-face -face service pretty much between here and Newcastle. That's a hundred and something miles. That's terrible. Is Citizens Advice on your radar and mm. what can you help, what can we do to stop this happening? Please, there's a 38 degrees petition <laughs> if anybody wants to sign it as well. Sign but it. Any ideas? MPs love a 38 degrees <laughs> petition. <laughs> Um, the, um, a, a, the, the thing that we have degraded quickest and fastest was the thing that most people didn't have to use and that was advice and guidance. Advice and guidance services basically don't exist anymore. In Birmingham there used to be um, citizens advice centres in every, pretty much every constituency would have had one or two. There's now one in the centre of the city so I have a citizens advice surgery, debt surgery in my office. Um, because they can, they can, they can't keep their buildings open, but they can operate floating services around the area. And when I saw it going out of my constituency, I was like, "Well, I'll put you up, have free rent," um, and that is really, really important. I think that we we degraded the idea of people needing benefits advice. Um, and it was, a, to be fair, it was a massive industry under the Blair years. Advice and guidance was a massive, massive thing. I worked in advice and guidance. I was a benefits advisor. Um, and I think so it was one of the things that, that when the Tories came in, they felt was a waste of money. And unfortunately, what we've seen is people dying of poverty because they actually aren't getting what they could access. So there is a desperate need to keep it open, keep it funded, 
Um, and what I would suggest to you, you're, you have a Tory MP, Anne-Marie, is it? Uh, she's actually all right. <laughs> um, some of you are probably Tories and you're probably all right as well. That's <laughs> um, just not how I was raised to think, but I recognise that now as I get older, um, that you don't all eat babies. Um, and... Um, so you, I would get in touch with her and I would ask her what she is going to do to replace that service and express to her that oh, you spoke to me. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I'm in surgery now. So oh, you spoke to me and that I have citizen's advice in my office, in an open office. What, why is it that she doesn't have an... Does she have an open office? Well, maybe suggest gently to her that she could have an open office that was open to people for advice and guidance. Because, you know, the only thing that hasn't been cut in the public sector is MPs' pay. And the only thing that hasn't been cut is the money that MPs get to employ staff. She has the same access to the exact same budget that I have access to. There's no reason why people can't open an office and have people coming in and getting help from people paid for by the taxpayer. Uh, another question? Okay. So there's actually a question just up there uh, at the back. If you just keep your hand up, please, so we can see you. Just get the mic to you. Thank you. Hello. Um, Hello. This is a question about men in the Labour Party. Oh. <laughs> so both in your book and in Harriet's book, there's chat about basically having to kick men, ki well, kicking and screaming, drag the men kicking and screaming along and sort of efforts to increase representation within women within the Labour Party, within Parliament, in, you know, all women shortlists, all that kind of stuff, and within our position within the leadership. Um, and Harriet talks about sort of the, um, you know, that kind of well-meaning but accidental sexists, the mm. ones that think that because they're on the left they can't be sexist, yeah. but they are. Um, are the out-and-out -out sexists yes. of the right worse than mm. the well-meaning left accidental I'm not a sexist sexist and um, they're the worst <laughs> they are the actual worst the left left-wing men who say of course we should step aside so women can have better representation oh you meant me oh no <laughs> not, not, not me I'm really clever I've got so much to offer the world you didn't mean me uh, yeah, they're the worst. They are literally the worst and they are everywhere. Um, yeah, left-wing men who tell me, I, I, I feel so cross about this that I almost want to name him, but <laughs> a well-known, a well-known well left-wing journalist from The Guardian <laughs> lectured me once about how Harriet Harman wasn't that great for women, and in fact, Jeremy Corbyn had always voted the right way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn's been better for women than Harriet Harman, obviously. <laughs> uh, I, I remember him in all those meetings, just there with his banners. Um, Men who want to own your equality and the things that you struggled for and fought for are absolutely fine if they want you to own it as well. But when they want it to puff out their own chests, that is really, really, really annoying. And 
the truth of the matter is, is it's not that they mean um, harm to women. They want to see women's equality. Almost all the men in the Labour Party want to see uh, women's equality. They want to see progress. They, they are glad that they're part of the party that is about progress and all women's shortlist. And they want to, I mean, not all of them want to cheer about that, but most of them now have got over it. Um, the trouble is is that when they they're, they're happy about it but they just don't think of you they don't think of you on the same level that's the top and bottom of it it's not it's benign neglect they you know so when you said what would you say if jeremy corbyn asked your opinion i'd fall over <laughs> the fact of the matter is is they don't think of your brilliance and when they close their eyes at night and think of amazing people who change the world it's always some white dude who pops into their head and that is the problem we have to get over that problem and that unfortunately will never ever change until we have a brilliant female leader of the Labour Party and we'll never get a brilliant female leader of the Labour Party until we make a rule that says the next one has to be a woman uh, and until that rule exists, um, we'll have a dude. There's more on all of that in the book. We've actually run out of time uh, now, so I want to thank you for your excellent questions. Um, Jess will be signing books in the bookshop next to this tent in a few moments' time. Thank you to Joe Ross for interpreting this afternoon. <laughs> and finally, it's been such a good hour. Jess Phillips. Well, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Excited. <laughs> I'm going to do it forever. <laughs> what do Are I have we? to do now? Just go. I just go. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.